Hello and welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary. It's my pleasure to talk with you each time about pressing issues related to ministry leadership today. One of the most difficult things that ministry leaders have to learn to handle is criticism and personal attack. A few years ago when I wrote the book, The Painful Side of Leadership, I included a chapter on this issue, in fact, actually two chapters. Uh, It seemed like after I wrote that book, God looked out of heaven and smiled and said, oh, you think you know about this subject? And then he allowed me to go through uh, one of the most difficult, challenging personal experiences of my life, and that was uh, all of the conflict related to Uh, the development issues of the old Golden Gate campus in Mill Valley, California, and all that it meant for us to move away from there and move to our new locations. And so, while I've been studying and preaching and teaching about this issue for a long time, I feel like in the past few years I went to graduate school on the subject. So what I'd like to do is uh, divide the podcast really into two parts. I'd like to spend the first part talking about uh, the characteristics of criticism, our personal attack, and some some simple uh, understanding of what that looks like and why it happens to us. And then I'd like to follow up with a second part of this podcast uh, describing strategies to really respond appropriately to critics and personal assault or personal attack, and then not only just respond to it, but how to do so in a way that becomes beneficial to you and to your spiritual growth. So let's start out by understanding uh, the characteristics of criticism and how it happens, and then focusing on what we can do about it and how we can turn it into a positive experience in our lives. To do this, I'd like to draw your attention to a story in the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, we find a very interesting encounter between two men, one named Shimei and the other, David, of course, King David. Now, the setting is this. David has lost his kingdom. His son Absalom has captured the kingdom from him, and David, along with a small cadre of his most trusted uh, soldiers and his family, are in a retreat trying to reestablish themselves, uh, recover their losses, and strategize about how they can move forward and reclaim the throne. All this is going on when this incident happens, starting in 2 Samuel 16 in verse 5. When King David got to Bahurim, a man belonging to the family of the house of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he was yelling curses as he approached. He threw stones at David and at all the royal servants, the people and the warriors on David's right and left. Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man! The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you're in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. Now let's stop and just meditate on that for just a moment. Uh, Abishai, what a guy. We're going to discover in the second part of the podcast that Abishai is frequently found in Scripture, either cutting off someone's head or asking for permission to do the same. He was a person who uh, took umbrage at this criticism and was willing and more than able to rectify the situation. But King David replied, Sons of Zeruiah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this way because the Lord told him, Curse David. Therefore, who can say, why did he do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Look, 
My own son, my own flesh and blood, intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shimei went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived, exhausted, so they rested there. In this story, we see characteristics of criticism, and then we see it even bleed over into what I call a personal assault. So first, the characteristics of criticism. First, criticism often comes when we least need it. This critic, Shimei, attacked David when he was vulnerable both personally in his, and in his family and also in his career. Uh, David had family and personal problems going on at the time of this incident. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 21, we learn that David's daughter Tamar had been raped by her half-brother, David's son Amnon. And in 2 Samuel 13, 22 through 38, we learn that David's son Absalom had then killed Amnon. In 2 Samuel 16, 1 to 4, we learn that David had heard Mephibosheth, his, if you will, foster son, had supposedly turned against him. So David had family and personal problems. He had a son who had raped his half-sister. He had another son who had killed his brother to avenge the rape. He had what he perceived to be deceit in his own household from an interloper that he had invited into his home and had now turned against him. David had family and personal problems. David also had career problems. In 2 Samuel 14.1 through 15.4, David's son Absalom had taken his throne and was ruling his kingdom. And in 2 Samuel 15.15 through 37, there's a description of David's army in retreat. When you're a king and a general and you've lost your throne and your army, you have career problems. Criticism often comes when we least need it. It comes when we're already hurting or exposed in our family or personal lives or when we're already hurting or exposed in our work or career lives. Criticism comes when we least need it. A number of years ago, our family risked everything, really, to move to Portland, Oregon and plant a new church. My wife and I had uh, three small children, the oldest of which was five years old, when we picked up and moved halfway across the country to plant the new church. We risked everything on that venture. We risked the health and well-being of our family. We risked our financial stability and long-term plans for the future. Uh, We risked, if you will, our our career lives, wondering if this church plant would actually be successful, and if it wasn't, what would we do instead of ministry? We were in a vulnerable place, both personally and professionally. Soon after we started the church, uh, a family, excuse me, a couple uh, came to visit our church. They were dressed very nicely, in fact, a little too nicely for the Pacific Northwest at the time. Uh, they had on uh, what you might consider normal Sunday dress for the Deep South. After the service, they stayed around to talk to various ones of us, and it was obvious that they were waiting to talk to me as the pastor. So uh, as the crowd thinned, I made my way over to them and struck up a conversation. I learned that they were a prominent Christian couple from a very large church in the South. 
they described that church to me and their involvement in it. Um, they told me that they had found our church by looking in the, uh, what was back in the day, the yellow pages, and picking out the closest Southern Baptist church that was listed. They were surprised when they came to our church to find us meeting in a public school building and uh, really just in the first year or so of getting started. After they had uh, made acquaintance with me a little bit, the, the man said, uh, young pastor, there's something I wanted to tell you. And I said, all right. And he said, you're a very good communicator. And I said, well, thank you, sir. And then he said these words. And if you'll just stay with it, someday someone's going to give you a real church. Now, it's hard to describe how deeply those words cut into me that day. As I look back on it, I really don't think the man meant to criticize me. I think in a kind of a weird way, he thought he was greatly encouraging me, telling me that if I would just keep preaching and stay with my discipline of ministry, that someday, someday, a real church with a building, with a choir, maybe even with a piano and an organ, certainly with some uh, white columns holding up the front porch, a real church like that would give me a chance to be their pastor. I had a real church. I had a small band of devoted and passionate Christians who were working sacrificially to give birth to a brand new congregation there in Oregon. We were a church. Uh, we were already doing what churches are supposed to do, evangelizing the lost, making disciples among the saved, caring and ministering and making a difference in our community. We were already a real church. I didn't need that criticism that day. I was already quite vulnerable, already feeling like I had expended and exposed myself in significant ways, and yet those words cut deeply. Another characteristic of criticism is it often comes when we least deserve it. In this text I've read in verse 8, David was accused of shedding the blood of Saul, and he was accused of reigning in Saul's place. So the legitimate question is, are these accusations accurate? And, of course, they're not. In 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22, there's a story of David sparing Saul's life in the cave. And in 1 Samuel 26, 1 through 25, David spared Saul's life in the camp. And in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 27, David actually killed Saul's killer and mourned Saul's death when it happened. No glee, no celebration, no usurping of the throne. And so David was accused of shedding the blood of Saul, but really just the opposite was true. On at least two occasions, he had painstakingly gone out of his way to preserve Saul's life. And then when Saul was finally killed, he had taken retribution out on the person who did the deed. And then David was accused of reigning in Saul's place. Again, this is not true. In 1 Samuel 16, 1-13, God had chosen David to be king. And in 2 Samuel 5, 1-5, David finally was anointed at his coronation. What's hard to, uh, to uh, keep up with in the passing of the, of the chapters of Scripture is how much time elapsed. Twenty years went by from the time that God chose David to be king until the time that David finally assumed the throne. The point is that David did not reign in Saul's place. He patiently waited for God to allow him to come into the kingdom without any effort or intentionality of his own. So criticism often comes when we least deserve it. David was accused of shedding the blood of Saul and of reigning in Saul's place. And of course, neither of these things were true. He did not deserve this criticism. 
I think back over incidents in my life where I've been criticized when I didn't deserve it. One of the earliest ones was when I was a children's pastor in my very first ministry responsibility. This goes back a while to the time before answering machines and even certainly before cell phones. We had a Royal Ambassadors track meet that had been organized for our Baptist Association of Churches. And it was scheduled for a Saturday afternoon at 3 o'clock. Well, on Friday afternoon, we received a phone call that because of stadium conflicts, the track meet had to be moved up a couple of hours, I think, to 1 o'clock. So I got on the phone and called all my fellows and told them what time to report to the track meet, and I was able to reach every boy except one. This little boy, unknown to me, had gone camping with his family. Well, the next day, around 3 o'clock, when the track meet was just about over, uh, that boy arrived at the, at the event, and of course he was too late to participate. But his mother was quite disgusted with me for not getting the word to her. I'm not quite sure how I could have done that since their family was away on a camping trip. No cell phone, no answering machine, no way to communicate. But nevertheless, she came around the corner of the grandstand and shrieked at the top of her lungs, Jeff Orge! And about 300 people in the grandstands sat down to watch the show. She crossed the track and came across the infield where I was standing, screaming and berating me the entire time for my uh, inconsideration toward her son and toward her family. It was one of the most publicly, uh, it was one of the worst public humiliations, certainly of my young ministry. I didn't know what to do, so I just stood there and took it. She screamed at me in front of all those people for something that there was nothing I could have done anything about and that I didn't really deserve uh, to be attacked regarding. I think about another incident. Uh, this was related to my doctoral work. When I was in the doctoral program, my seminary made it very clear that when you submitted your pr prospectus for your doctoral project and report, that that prospectus had to be submitted in precise form. Uh, it's called Turabian form in the academic world. Well, I took their, their uh, warning quite seriously that apart from a perfectly presented prospectus according to the format they prescribed, uh, you had no chance of passing. And so I went to a seminary near where I was living in Portland, Oregon, and I asked the doctoral uh, uh, office at that place, who's your best Turabian expert and your best Turabian typist? And they gave me a woman's name. I uh, made a contact with her, told her what I wanted done, that I needed this paper typed in perfect Turabian form. She said she could do it for $300. Now, back in those days, that was a lot of money. That'd be about, about like $1,500 probably today. So I said, oh, man, I can't believe that she wants this much money. But I th said, okay, uh, I'll do it. So I gave her the money, and uh, she typed the paper, and I submitted it. A few weeks later, I got a letter back, and I'll never forget the first sentence. It said, it is obvious that you have completely disregarded our uh, advice and requirements related to the Turabian formatting. They failed my paper entirely. I sent it back and said, we only allow two opportunities for submission. You have one more. If you fail the next one, you're out of the program. That was a devastating communication. Um, here I was being uh, criticized for something that I hadn't done. In fact, more than that, I had gone to the extreme of paying out a lot of money to have this paper typed by someone who was a supposed expert, and I got it back completely and summarily rejected. 
Now, I don't think that the people who wrote me that letter were trying to personally attack me or anything like that. They didn't know the circumstances that uh, had produced the document. They were just telling me the facts. I had failed and that uh, I, I was at risk of losing my opportunity to be in the program. What they didn't know was how hard I had worked uh, to try to produce what I perceived to be a perfect paper that an expert had actually vetted and produced on my behalf. So. I was criticized when I really didn't deserve it uh, in the sense that I received the news I should have received, but they didn't have the context to understand how much I had put into the project. Well, another characteristic of criticism is criticism often comes from those least qualified to give it. I think about this particular story, uh, picking the story up in verse 5, we see that Shimei was an interesting character. He was from Bahurim. Now, you, of course, remember uh, all the things that happened there in the Bible. You don't remember them. Well, that's because there's no other thing that ever happened in that place that's ever mentioned in the Bible. It's a place of no historical significance. Then the Bible tells us that Shimei was from Saul's clan, and the phrasing indicates that he was probably some kind of distant cousin or very tangential, uh, tangentially related person. And then it was, he was the son of Gera. And I'm sure, of course, that you also remember everything Gira is known for. Well, that's because uh, you don't remember anything because he didn't ever do anything. So here's Shimei. He's a nobody related to no one from no place. And yet, he has the temerity to criticize the king and to more than criticize the king, to fire rocks and sticks and dirt down from a a cliff paralleling the path a king was on. Well, this tells us that sometimes you'll be criticized by people who are least qualified to give it. People who have never preached a sermon will stop you at the back door of the, serv- uh, of the worship center and tell you what you should be doing better to preach more effectively. People who have never had a teenager will tell you things you ought to be doing to, to parent your teenage child more effectively. People who have no experience with what you're dealing with and no life perspective on the circumstances that you're encountering will give you all kinds of input about how you ought to be or how you should be uh, living your life or leading your ministry or conducting your family. It is astounding to me how people who are not really qualified to comment on who we are or what we do have so much to say about our actions and our attitudes. So just get ready for it. People who are not really qualified are going to have a lot to say about your life and about your work. So let's review. Criticism often comes when we least need it and when we least deserve it and from those people who are least qualified to give it. And then, finally, criticism can move from words to becoming a personal attack. Now in this text, the Bible says Shimei cursed and slandered David, meaning that he... He said things to him that were hurtful, uh, that were in some cases incorrect, that were certainly undeserved, but nevertheless quite pointed and quite aggressive. But beyond the things that Shimei said to David, notice that he also threw rocks and dirt down on David. This rises to another level of personal attack, and that is it becomes assault by today's standards. Now, I want to say two things about this. First, uh, your critics will sometimes get personal. 
again, going back to my minister to children days, uh, in, our, in my first ministry responsibility, our church had a weekday child care program. And when we opened the program, in order to build enrollment, we had uh, both full-time children and part-time children, meaning children that were there five days a week and then children that were just there one or two days a week. As the program grew and stabilized, it became obvious that we really needed to only service full-time children for a lot of different reasons. And so it, uh, we, we let the natural attrition take place, and we finally only had two part-time children left and over 100 that were coming full-time. So this was in January, and we said to those two parents in the form of a letter, uh, at the end of this year, meaning the end of August when the school year ended and a new school year started, eight months from now, we're going to no longer enroll part-time children in our program. So between now and August, uh, you have eight months to find alternative uh, care for your children. Now, in both these cases, these mothers were using our program for a Mother's Day Out type experience, which is certainly appropriate, but it really wasn't what our program was designed to do. And so one of the moms uh, dropped by the office after she received the letter and said, hey, thanks, no problem, I understand the the change, and thanks for giving me so much time, and we'll definitely have something arranged by the summer. But the other mother was not quite so uh, positive. She walked in my office held up the letter and said, and I can almost quote these words after hearing them so clearly so many years ago, she held up the letter and said, did you send me this letter? And I said, yes. And then she slammed the letter down on my desk with her hand making a very loud sound as she slammed the desk with with the letter. And she looked at me and she said, I can't believe you're throwing my child out of your program. And then she said these words, and you... And you call yourself a minister. And then she turned around, turned around and stomped out of my office. You call yourself a minister. Well, as a young person just starting out in ministry, I was devastated by that attack. I really did consider myself a minister. I, I thought I had done everything I could to to uh, care for this woman's child, to give them an opportunity to be a part of our program, to ease them out in a good and healthy kind of way. But she attacked me that day with those words, and you call yourself a minister. Well, criticism often comes as a personal attack, and sometimes it stops with words like those words I just described. But also, there are becoming more and more times in our world today when the attack goes to another level, which is what Shimei did with the rocks and the stones. Shimei was guilty of assault. And today, ministry leaders, unfortunately, face more than just words spoke against them. We also face criminal activity or criminal attack against us. Here are some examples of what I mean. The first one is physical threats or assaults. I'm familiar with several instances where ministers have been slapped punched, kicked, or otherwise assaulted physically because of something that they've done or perceived to have done as a leader. Another criminal activity is vandalism or theft against your property, Um, having cars uh, vandalized, offices broken into, uh, computer information stolen. Uh, All of these kinds of things are, uh, are different attacks that ministry leaders experience today. 
another one that I, I mentioned I'll add to, and that is hacking into your computer or somehow accessing or stealing your confidential information. Uh, this used to require someone breaking and entering your office and taking a file folder. Now all they have to do is be able to access your computer and read everything you have on it. And then another kind of attack that ministry leaders are experiencing today is threats or assaults on family members where a wife or a child is the one who's really at greater risk. I know that in several larger churches uh, these days, uh, there are actually uh, plainclothes security people who are shadowing the wives, uh, the wife and children of ministry leaders just because of the unpredictability of people who go after a person's family when they don't feel like they can get to the leader himself. So, criminal activity against leaders today. Here are some examples, real-time examples, of things I'm familiar with happening uh, in the churches uh, in the United States, certainly the churches on the West Coast. Physical threats or assaults, vandalism or theft of property, hacking into computer or computer information or somehow stealing information uh, that's stored electronically, and then threats or assaults on family members. Now, one of the most uh, egregious examples of this is a pastor here in the western United States that I've known for uh, almost 20 years. This uh, pastor is a friend of mine. I've been in his church on multiple occasions. I've met with him and his family. Uh, he's given me permission to share some of his story. Uh, I've recently updated with him to find out the current status, and unfortunately it's all still going on. I'll tell you briefly his story, and then I'll give you some steps that he suggests that you do to protect yourself if you are the victim of some criminal activity against you as a ministry leader. A number of years ago, this pastor gave an invitation on a Sunday morning inviting people to come forward and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and a woman did that. After she received the Lord, she asked for permission to talk with the pastor a few days later, and they had an appointment to talk about her baptism. The pastor could tell in that first encounter that she was a very troubled person, but he had no idea the full ramifications of her mental illness. A few uh, days later, she was baptized, and then a few weeks later, she made a follow-up appointment with the pastor in which she told him this. She said, Pastor, uh, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for leading me to Christ and baptizing me. Now I've come to tell you that God has told me that we're someday going to be married. And I'm going to wait patiently for you to understand this is part of God's plan. And when you're ready, I want you to know that I'll be ready and we can move forward together. Well, the pastor, of course, completely and uh, absolutely rejected what this woman said, uh, immediately called someone into the office to uh, confront her about what she had said to him and uh, rejected entirely any consideration that he would ever meet with her privately or in any context again to discuss anything related to her personal needs or her even her spiritual growth. Well, that was the beginning of what has turned into a multi-year stalking situation. This woman has been arrested, tried, and convicted on two different occasions. She's been imprisoned once for a year, once for a lesser amount of time, for uh, stalking and assaulting this pastor, or not assaulting, but stalking this pastor and threatening to assault him and his family. Uh, on the first occasion that she was arrested when the police went to her home, they discovered an entire wall of her living room had been covered with photographs of the pastor and his family, kind of a decoupage type presentation. And those photographs were of the pastor and his family on vacation all over the United States, uh, of private times in their home, 
uh, of times in their, at church and in other locations in the community, photographs of the children while they were at school. It was obvious that this woman had been stalking their family uh, all over the country and in all different contexts for months. So she was arrested, tried, convicted. She got out after serving her time. She was arrested a second time, went back to prison again. And the second time that she was imprisoned, uh, the pastor, uh, because what she had done had crossed state lines, federal, uh, invest, federal uh, authorities were involved. And they met with the pastor and said, you and your family uh, need to go into witness protection. There is no way that we can protect you. She will eventually harm you. Well, they had four children, and uh, they were coming into the teenage years at the time, and they just didn't feel like their family could go through that kind of identity crisis at this particular point. And so they made the decision not to do it and instead to set up a system of protection for their family. So their church has uh, armed police officers in every worship service, plain clothes. The church has a uh, black and white, a car sitting out on the parking lot at every time the church is uh, having services, just as another deterrent. Uh, the, they also obviously have restraining orders and those kinds of things, but uh, so they're legally protected, even though they may not stop the woman from coming. Uh, they have uh, code words that their children have all memorized, and every year the police and the family meet with the school administrators and, uh, and, and teachers of the children and help them understand the importance of these code words and what they mean and why. Uh, the, the, the pastor uh, is uh, always accompanied by someone uh, when he's out in any ministry context, uh, whether it's a hospital visit or any kind of public meeting or any kind of preaching opportunity, so that there's always someone watching his environment to be sure that this person's not uh, getting close to him or anywhere trying to approach him. This has been going on for the last several years, and it's a perpetual attack that really doesn't show any sign of letting up. So what I'm saying is uh, that we're going to face these kinds of things in ministry leadership, so what do we do? Well, here's five suggestions this pastor gives. First, document everything. From the very beginning, keep a good record of anything that you think anyone is doing to you that might rise to criminal behavior. Second, in law, involve law enforcement early in the process. This doesn't mean you get someone arrested or anything like that. It just means go to local law enforcement and ask for their counsel about what to do if you feel like you're being threatened or there's a chance of possibility that you're going to experience something I've described in this, in this podcast. Get their counsel, their, their help to know what to do to document and prepare for the right kind of intervention should it need to come. And then third, uh, recognize that Many of the people who do this kind of activity are really mentally ill and recognize their unpredictability and understand that you can't have a rational response to them, that you have to have a response that really is much stronger than that and involves other things like I've described, video surveillance, constant accompaniment, code words, things like this that you wouldn't think normally would be required, may be required to protect yourself from an unpredictable person. And then protect your family. Make sure that your wife and children or your husband and children have the kind of protection they need and the kind of system in place to take care of these kinds of issues. And then finally, create an organizational response plan. Now, in some cases, that can be quite simple. Uh, just learn how to lock doors better, better computer security, uh, those kinds of things. But in some cases, like this one I've described, they've had to install video surveillance on the pastor's office and on the church facility, and they've done other things to create um, a more secure environment for the pastor to do his ministry and for the family to live in their community. So sometimes, unfortunately, critics become criminals, and when they do, we have to make a good response. So this first part of the podcast describes what criticism is like, 
where it comes from, how it can bleed over from criticism to personal attack, even assault, and what we can do about it. So uh, now we'll move to the second part of the podcast, which is more a description of what we can do to respond, not so much to the assault kind of critic or to the person who's doing criminal activity, but just the persistent critic who stays after us in a ministry setting and what we can learn from that and how we can turn it to our advantage. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Hey, lead on. We appreciate your time.